So uh, tonight, as is uh, often is the case on our Saturday evening, is an opportunity to give a reflection on Dhamma. And I thought I would uh, spend the evening talking about the meaning of this ceremony and the power of renunciation and how it might be relevant in our world today. And uh, I was reflecting on that, and um, there was a cartoon that I have seen, and it was a, of a you know this this world traveler, this person who's on this long search, you know, and he's he's struggling up this very steep mountain, and he gets up to the top of the mountain, and there's a a wise man. We'll have to do something about the gender, but there's a wise man with a long beard, and he asks this man a question, and he says, you know, how do you find happiness in the world? And the man says. Self-discipline, restraint, and renunciation. And he says, is there anybody else up here I can talk to? (laughs) (laughs) So we live in a modern society where restraint and self-discipline and renunciation are not popular. And yet... Um, you know, most spiritual practices across the board have this as central features, as ways of understanding how to arrive at happiness and what's needed in order to let go of things which are unskillful. And here we are sitting in Shove Chapel, which is an exquisitely beautiful chapel, an ecumenical chapel. We've got a shrine to Buddha behind, uh, we can't see it, but there's an image of Christ on the cross if it was backlit by the sunlight behind us. You know, we've got Tara here. And so we've got representations of different religious uh, faiths that are present in this actual physical space. And yet when we look at the teachings of all of them, self-discipline, restraint, and renunciation is a common theme. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time this evening talking about what this ceremony means and what the significance of it is, and then just reflecting on how renunciation can be something that uh, we can each reflect on in our own lives. So the Anagarika precept ceremony is the formal taking of the eight precepts. So Gwen has been living on the eight precepts since she came to uh, Colorado in July. So she moved up here from Texas, and we're absolutely delighted that family is here and friends have come in order to celebrate and honor and witness this transformation, this ceremony, and to support her in her onward journey of wanting to live as a part of a community and have her singular focus be that which is towards awakening. And so when we have the eight precept ceremony, you know, the taking the three refuges is aligning oneself with the qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And the quality of Buddha is that reflective quality which knows. It's not taking refuge in a historical human being who lived 2,500 years ago. It's taking refuge in that quality that knows right here and right now. It's something that each of us can wake up to. It's present. It's ever-present. 
And so when one aligns oneself with the quality of Buddha, one moves out of the immediacy of one's own personal story and circumstance and connects up with something which is significantly larger. When one takes refuge in the Dhamma, one's taking refuge in the truth of the way things are, which is often not the same as the way I'd like them to be. (laughs) I don't know about you. (laughs) So the truth of the way things are is what's actually happening in the present moment and how am I relating to that? That also includes, the Dhamma includes the legacy of the teachings that the Buddha gave. So through his understanding, through his insight, through his discourses, through his 45 years of teaching, there are many descriptions of ways of working with the mind and the body in order to bring about this sense of ease and well-being, the sense of peace. When we take refuge in the Sangha, we're collecting, we're, we're reflecting on the fourfold assembly of laymen and laywomen, of monks and nuns, who are aspiring to wake up out of suffering. And to let that be the community, or to let that be the reference that one refers to. So it's been so lovely to see the support and the interest and the friendship and the well-wishing that has come forward and all of the conditions that have come together that have supported this happening today. Offering of cloth, helping with sewing, buying socks and turtlenecks and scarves and hats, you know, bringing flowers, seeing that things are set up, that family are attended to, you know, even having the physical space where we can practice in this way. And so people, in their natural curiosity and interest, have made all kinds of assumptions about, oh, she can't handle money, she can't drive a car, everything is going to be different, what does it look like? And the reality is, is that the precepts she has now are exactly the same as the precepts that she had when she came. However, you may notice that she looks a little bit different. So when a person undergoes the eight precept ceremony as a formal commitment, they shave their head and they take the anagarica white robes. And living in Colorado Springs, being a woman who is bald-headed and wearing white robes is not the norm. So a person is then in a position of no longer being identifiable as a layperson. One's part of a religious community. And as such then the kind of choices that one makes not only reflects on oneself, but reflects on the larger Sangha field. And so there's a lot more learning that's required to be an Anagarika because there's an awful lot of what is considered suitable as a monastic, which as lay people is really not anything that you need to concern yourselves with in terms of how does one conduct oneself and what's appropriate. So even though the precepts remain the same, the level of uh, negotiation and complexity and subtlety increases several orders of magnitude. (laughs) So the question is, is, well, why would anyone want to do that? (laughs) 
And it's a valid question. Why do people aspire to go forth? Why are people interested in being part of a religious community? What is the value and how is it that this actually supports a person so that they can wake up and be free? We live in a, a contemporary society, and the modern society has basically runs something like this. If I get what I want, and if I get rid of what I don't want, then that's the key to happiness. So the more power that I have to be able to get what I want, and the more capacity I have to manipulate and to get rid of what I don't want, then the better located I am in being able to situate myself where I will feel comfortable, at ease, peaceful, and happy. Well, check it out. Does it work? I mean, has it ever worked? Will it ever work? And so the process of being a religious aspirant is to begin to recognize, well, that basic fundamental equation doesn't work. It never has worked. And that the key to happiness comes actually from a completely different place, which is not getting what you want, getting rid of what you don't want, but living with integrity, feeling at ease with what's happening, being able to negotiate the enormous kinds of changes and situations that arise and feel peaceful with one's ability to respond. So it changes from getting what you want, getting rid of you what you don't want, to being able to be able to receive what is with joy and with gratitude, with a sense of wonderment. You know, and as I've been watching these packages arriving from various parts of the country and people showing up with gifts and all the rest of that, and I see Gwen and I watch her face and I see this kind of wonderment that there's such an enormous amount of support and well-wishing. And so one is then transported from it being only about me and my own personality and my personal struggles into something which touches a universal cord. Because even though there isn't a lot of renunciance in our contemporary culture, on some level, each of us has a deep-seated longing to singularly focus our life towards waking up. And so when one person then makes that commitment, it touches everybody's interest to live like that. And then there's the wholehearted joy and the wholehearted well-wishing that this is something that is of benefit and, and, and supportive, not only for Gwen, but for the whole community. So in the monastic tradition that I come from, keeping the precepts it creates a foundation that supports the mind settling and being at peace. So the eight precepts to refrain from killing or taking the life of any living being sets the stage and the context where harmlessness is a top priority. It's a bottom line. It's not something that we compromise. Even when it's sometimes uncomfortable or awkward. The second precept, to refrain from taking anything which is not given, puts us in a position where we have to be upright and with an enormous amount of integrity about some of the stuff that in our contemporary society is often easy to blur. 
in terms of, you know, taking things or copying things that have copyright or making sure that there's due credit given for somebody's work, things like that, you know. And then also just having a sense that when one lives like that, then one can leave one's things around and it's safe. So in living in the monastery, it was fascinating to me. People, people would leave their purses or their cell phones or you know, a little bit of pile of money, and it would be there for a week. No one would touch it. You know? And then somebody might pick it up and take it to the office to see if somebody had left it behind. But the kind of normal thing where you have to watch behind your back and be sure that somebody isn't around to take stuff is not what happens when you're living in an environment where people are committed to non to taking what is not given. To not taking what is not given. Then the third precept, to refrain from any kind of sexual activity. Now for many people, this is not considered a path to happiness. This is considered a path to a lot of frustration and suffering. But the path is one of allowing this life force energy to be understood and known and spread throughout the entire mind-body system so that it is actually a force of awakening. It is part of one's practice. It is an aspect of our spiritual life. And the irony is, is, is that when one actually makes the commitment to celibacy and does it with an enormous amount of wisdom, the level of peace and settledness in this whole area can be profound. The whole topic around speech for many people is, you know, it's a challenging one because it's not easy to speak in a way where one is skillful and using it to support harmony and talking about things which are both truthful and relevant. And yet when one makes a commitment to using speech in that way, then again there's an enormous amount of safety that starts to build in communities, an enormous amount of clarity in one's own thinking process. Because when one becomes committed to speaking honestly, it helps clarify our relationship with our own thoughts. And then the fifth precept is to refrain from uh, taking drugs or drink which confuse and cause the mind to be heedless or careless. And, you know, one of the things that's apparent in the world that I've lived in is, is that no matter how good intention a person can be, when they mix it with drugs or with alcohol, the capacity for discernment rapidly goes out the window. Well, I was teaching a family camp once, and I brought a, a styrofoam cup in and some gasoline. We were talking about the precepts. And I said, well, the reason why we keep the precepts, particularly the fifth precept, is because of this. And I poured the gasoline into the styrofoam cup, and it liquidizes it. It just dissolves it. You know, Because the container and the ability to reflect on every other aspect of one's life is totally dismantled, depending on the amount of intoxicating substances that one has in one's system. So no matter what one's intention or aspiration is, you're mixing something that uh, puts one in a disadvantage. The sixth precept is to refrain from eating after midday. And, you know, for some people they think, well, what on earth is that all about? You know, why do that? But when one thinks about it, you know, in, the, in a 
in a culture, this tradition comes from India, and in a hot climate in particular, where it's really advantageous to eat in the cool of the day. And then when one's committed to reflection and meditation, it is tremendously valuable not to have to be organizing and cooking and cleaning and thinking about and digesting food throughout the whole of the day. So as a contemplative order, you know, our priority is reflection and meditation and being able to wake up to how things are and to how we're relating to them. And so when our system is sluggish from digestion and when we're having to spend a considerable amount of time with the whole food preparation thing, then it has an effect on that. So we're not living in India where it's hot. We're living in Colorado where it's cold. <laughs> and yet the tradition is still maintained and you know we seem to do just fine. So the, the ability to eat substantial meals that are healthy is supported by the lay community who are able to offer food like that. And then we can manage to eat the two meals during the first part of the day and then the food thing is finished. You know, the cooking is finished, the smells are finished, the cleaning up is finished. And because as an alms mendicant community, we rely on the support of the lay community to to offer food, then when we eat three times a day, it takes three times that extra amount to actually look after us. You know, if there's just one substantial meal and breakfast, then it's much less effort that's required from the lay community to support So part of the renunciation is not only for our own benefit, but also to be in a situation where we're easier to look after. And as a bhikkhuni, I'm not allowed to store food or cook food myself, which means the food actually needs to be handed into my hands in order for me to eat it every day. Well, if that was happening three times a day, it's more effort than if it's happening once or twice. The seventh precept, so the sixth precept and seventh precept and eighth precept have to do with the renunciation precepts. And again, it's not so much about it being immoral, you know, to sing or to dance or to dress up or to look beautiful or to have fun. But it's a question that our life is now moving in a direction where it's singularly focused on awakening. And as such, one wants to be very circumspect about what is appropriate and what's not. You know, so games and shows and all the rest of that are often specifically designed to take your attention away from what's happening, to distract and to disperse in order to give a feeling of ease and well-being that comes from having contact with something other. And as a contemplative, our whole orientation is to not move towards that, but to move inward to actually feel what's actually happening here. Because when we get a sense of what's actually happening here, we can get a sense of where there's tension and where there's tightness, and how are we able to release that. And as we're able to release the tightness and the tension, release wanting things to be a certain way, release the hankering to have things go away, then what happens is there's an increased sense of ease and well-being with what is. And sometimes with what is is lovely, and sometimes with what is is not so lovely. But as one practices with these basic principles of not distracting oneself, one's capacity to be with what is increases, and the corresponding 
capacity to relax into it also increases. And as we relax, there's a greater sense that ease and well-being is here in the present moment. It's not dependent on something outside. The eighth precept about not sleeping on higher luxurious sleeping places in our culture is almost unfathomable to think what that really has to do with. But in, you know, in an ancient time where there were people who had extraordinarily luxurious uh, houses or circumstance, you know, a nice big feather bed with a big huge fluffy duvet, you kind of sink into it and you're gone. <laughs> So this whole idea, again, reinforces the fact that we need to rest, so that's fair enough, so we can you know, rest in a way where we're supported, but not to use sleep as a way to escape. So this taking of the three refuges in the eight precepts sets a context where there's a foundation of integrity, there's a foundation of honesty, there's a foundation of harmlessness, And that foundation gives the context for being able to reflect on all of the things that arise in the mind. In uh, a number of cultures, indigenous cultures, Native American cultures, many cultures, there's a deep-seated feeling or appreciation for the interdependence of life. You know, that our life is dependent upon the earth that brings forth food, dependent upon the water, dependent upon the sun, The creatures are an intimate part of the web of life. And in understanding that, one lives with a heightened degree of sensitivity as well as a heightened sense of respect. And for a number of reasons in a postmodern society, we've lost contact with that. We have a sense that, you know, if we use money, we can get what we want, and it's my choice. You know, I can choose whatever I want to. And so that the sense of the interconnectedness, the weaving of things, the various factors that come together to support any one condition being present is something that for many people in a postmodern society is not uppermost in one's thoughts as we move through the day. In addition to that, there is a greater sense of alienation and a sense of not feeling where one necessarily belongs or where one's place is, where one fits in. And one of the things that happens as a monastic, particularly when one is living on alms, is that one realizes that one's life is dependent upon the generosity of others. So for the last 20 years... The food that I eat has been the food that has been offered to me. There has not been one instance where I was able to procure food on my own. Everything that I have and everything that I own was given to me. It was either given directly or it was given by somebody offering funds and a steward making certain things available. So my life is the, the, the result of an interdependent understanding. There is no possible way that a monastic and the tradition that I live in can survive unless there's support 
And every day, in terms of food and requisites and heat and all the rest of that, it's a reflection in my mind. The fact that I'm allowed to live another day because of the generosity of people providing food. There's enough funds to pay for the rent. There's enough funds to pay for the heat. And then that gives me the context for being able to do and live and practice in the way that I am. So the fabric of my life is built upon an interdependent understanding. And as such, it increases my sensitivity both to relationships as well as to usage, as well as to gratitude. I don't take it for granted. The other thing that it does is there's a sense of wonderment. You know, this year I was going on alms round at Farmer's Market in uh, at Colorado, in uh, old Colorado City. And I'm, I'm aware of where I'm living. <laughs> I'm aware that this is, a, you know, a, a, not a, um, uh, there's not a strong, uh, cohesive Buddhist community here. And that I am the only uh, Theravadan bhikkhuni that I am aware of in the whole Front Range area. I don't know of another one. And most people don't really have any sense at all of, you know, what my life is about or how I live or what I do or what I think or what I teach. And so I'm a a little bit like a pink striped zebra walking down the street. You know, an unknown quantity. And yet, when I would go on alms round at the farmer's market with my robes and my bowl and my deportment of a monastic... There wasn't a single occasion where there weren't something offered. And so what's happening? Nobody knew what I was about. And nobody knew that if I didn't get food, that, it, you know, that there, wouldn't, there sometimes wouldn't be anything to eat. But there's something that registers for people when they see a renunciant. When they see somebody wearing robes, somebody who's shaving their head. We've got lots of people here who've shaved their head. <laughs> makes me happy. <laughs> With an alms bowl, there's something in it which registers of uh, an older memory. You know, it's not a contemporary memory, but it's an older memory of living in relationship with a renunciant lifestyle. And it might not even be conscious, but it's the only thing that I can figure out is why is it that people come up to me and offer food? They have no idea who I am and what I'm doing. There's something that strikes a, a, a resonance with them. And there's an interest and a willingness to want to support. So one of the blessings of a monastic community is, is that it begins to create a culture where everybody, according to their own precept level and commitment, can begin to start reflecting on values that are meaningful to them. You know? And so it's been fascinating for us, Gwen and I, to read some of the responses of people as they've been offering their well-wishing. Because it makes them question their own choices. And is this also true for people who've never met Gwen or don't have any idea who she is as a person or her history or where she comes from or the personal struggles that she's been through or even her aspirations? But just the willingness to make that commitment, then it requires 
a possibility or it opens the door for everyone to question their own choices. Because then there is a symbol or a signal or a, a representation of another choice. There actually is another choice. And in this circumstances, because we have the support, there is enough alms food, we have a place to live, there is heat, so we don't freeze. There is the possibility of singularly focusing one's life towards awakening. And letting that be one's aspiration. But that is what one wants to do with one's life. And whether or not one is in a position to make that commitment oneself, seeing that there are people around who are, check it out. What does it feel like? How does it affect you? What happens in your own life? What happens to your own commitment? What happens to your own aspiration? So the blessing of a monastic community or the blessing of a monastic presence is it begins to activate the possibility for waking up that is in every of one of us. So that we begin to see that it actually is something that can be an important part of our life. And then as people draw near and begin to feel the joy and the support and the safety and the community and the friendship that comes, it creates a context where one is able to do deeper in one's own individual practice. So the possibility for living with self-discipline and restraint and renunciation creates a context where people can start looking at their own choices, activate their own interest to wake up, see their own longing for peace and happiness, and then begin to start living in a way that is congruent with their own values. So one of the reasons why the Buddha created a system where the monks and the nuns in the Theravada tradition are required to have food offered to them in their hands every day, they're not allowed to store it, is to insist that there was contact with the lay community. And so if we were able to uh, store food or grow our own food or to uh, support ourselves, then we wouldn't have to have contact with the lay community. And as a result of not having contact with the lay community, there wouldn't be that rich, interdependent uh, uh, association. The friendship, the support, and the mutual benefit that comes. So when I think about all of the conditions that come together to make this possible, obviously, you know, we have a community that's supporting, but we also have a person who's willing to make this step. You know, and when I see what Anagarika Gwen has been through, her choice, her commitment, her aspiration, her willingness to stay with something and persevere, there's a tremendous sense of joy and nobility that comes to my own heart in watching her take up this commitment, even if it is only for one year, and use it in the best way that she knows how in order to realize the fruit 
of what it is not to suffer and to be at peace. So it delights me, absolutely delights me. And it also delights me to do so many of you here, see friends, mother, brother, family, friends coming from far away to be here for this evening. It's very touching to see so much support, to see people from different groups who are around Colorado coming, see our punks. So I feel really an enormous sense of joy that the conditions have been supportive enough to allow this to come together. It takes all of us. It takes a community, it takes an aspiration, it takes a person, it takes somebody willing and able to take somebody on and offer the precepts and offer the training. It takes all of it. And when I look at my own experiences, you know, having spent 10 years as a lay practitioner before, having had the opportunity and going forth into the robes, you know, for me, I can see that there was, a, there was quite a shift. Because even though I thought I was a pretty hotshot meditator, I was pretty surprised about what happened when I actually got to the monastery. <laughs> and so for me, the enormous blessings that come from the focus of this life is something that I feel a lot of joy and privilege to have been able to live for all these years, and now also to be able to create opportunities for others to share and join in as well. You know? It's a powerful vehicle. Tremendously powerful vehicle. But the beauty is, is that everybody can benefit. And so that moving against the grain of what our contemporary society is saying, which is is that the blessings come from having what you want, getting rid of what you don't want. And the contemplative life goes right into the center place where it is most hot and challenges that. You know? And check out the results. What does it look like? And what does it look like or what does it feel like to come close or to draw near or to have some sense of, of friendship? You know, how does that support you? So the core values of our society are challenged and yet the heart is able to grow and blossom in an understanding that as far as I see is beneficial to everybody. Nobody loses out. Everybody wins. So I just want to close the evening reflection with my deepest appreciation for all of your coming here and all of the people who are not able to be present tonight, who are sending their well wishes from the England and Australia and New Zealand and California, from Sri Lanka and Thailand. And just to take a moment to rejoice in the goodness that's present here that makes this come about. You know? It's wonderful. So we can stop and have some tea and have a time for... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.